Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Good morning again, everybody. A couple months ago, Mike gave us a message about everyone being only 15 seconds from tears. Shortly after that message, I gave my own about similar themes when I worked at Starbucks. How customers I served cried in front of me often, either because I knew their stories or because I told them we were out of chocolate croissants. I served nearly 75 customers per hour, each of them carrying with them out into the world their stories of pain, of loneliness, and the constant question, do I belong here? Once I realized that this was behind the seemingly irrational outburst of tears, my care for each of them changed. Just two days after I gave that message here, Mike and I met in our usual spot for coffee. As we talked, the owner of the coffee shop walked into the front door. Mike and I said hello, but as we looked at him, we could tell he had something to say. I'm so happy the two of you are here. Seriously, thank you for spending your money here. I so appreciate it. As he said the word appreciate, his eyes filled with tears. He continued, it's been really hard. Sometimes I don't know if I'll be able to keep the doors of this place open. So I just need to say thank you for supporting us. As he walked behind the counter, Mike looked at me and said, 15 seconds. The thought that everyone is only seconds away from tears hasn't left me and has only revisited me more in these weeks following the yearly meeting decision to expel us. In the wake of that decision, I have struggled. I've struggled because I have a hard time figuring out a way to respond that adequately takes into account, takes into account that each of you sitting out there in those uncomfortable pews feel differently about what has happened. And that the yearly meeting decision has hit you in a place that brings up tears for different reasons than the person sitting next to you. How possibly can I say anything to take into account that each of us is hurting for different reasons and to speak into that? So instead of talking about our expulsion from the yearly meeting, and about how I feel about it, 
I want to talk some more about the well of tears that waits just under the surface for all of us and how that can make us a better how that can make us better listeners and attenders to our souls. <clears throat> I was raised in the evangelical tradition. I was about 11 years old when my family started attending our evangelical church. Even at 11 the message was clear from the moment I started attending. You are a sinner in need of saving. The only way I could be saved from my sinfulness was that Jesus Christ died for me. He was sacrificed on my behalf. That was the gospel. That was the heart of my upbringing in the church. If nothing else, knowing that I was saved by Jesus was the key. So <clears throat> when it came time to read the Bible, every word was read through the lens of my depravity, my guilt, my shame, my tendency towards sin, towards temptation. It was read through the lens of my constant need to be saved from myself. It was read through the lens of a God who was so angry with me all the time. It was read through a lens of a God who was always disappointed in me. To this very day, when I hear scripture, the first and sometimes the only thing I hear is, you are awful. I am so disappointed in you. I've been out of the evangelical church for a long time. The fact that this is still the message I get when reading scripture tells you how foundational this belief was in my formational spiritual years. <clears throat> when a religious tradition speaks into our self-worth, it has incredible power. If God is our cosmic father, the father of all fathers, and this father is perpetually disappointed in us, even angry with us, it speaks to our self-worth in the eyes of God. What's even more strange is that we are told that disappointed father loves us, but only because his real son sacrificed his life for us to be loved and in relationship with him. I didn't want to disappoint my father. I didn't want him to be angry with me. And so I was called into the evangelical Christian life of constantly checking my sinfulness, of constantly begging for forgiveness. As a teenager, I was afraid that if I said a swear word before I died and hadn't asked for forgiveness, that I'd go to hell. I was terrified that Jesus would return to the world while I was busy being a misbehaved teenager. And so I lived my adolescence constantly reminding myself that I was indeed awful and unworthy of the love that I received from Jesus. God, for me, was in the business of calling me out. In speaking of my own experience, I realized that it isn't just evangelicals who are guilty of this, of calling out our unworthiness. There are people in our lives there are institutions and powers that tell us this day in and day out. My formational years as a Christian created in me a sense that God didn't like me 
and that Christianity existed to constantly call out my sinfulness and lack of obedience. This has obviously colored the way I still see God, even though I've done my best to abandon this understanding of who God is. What I want to suggest today is that maybe we need to know that we are beloved, that God actually, well, likes us. What if, we be, what if we can begin to hear this, that we are beloved first and foremost? What if we can begin listening just a little at a time from a knowledge that we belong and that we are indeed loved and liked? For the last couple years, I've tried my best to listen in this way. So when I hear the words of Jesus, I try to imagine that I am being invited into a new way of seeing the world. I am being invited to seeing my place within the world in a different way. What if Jesus is calling me out of a system that values boundaries and is calling me instead into a system that has no limitations on who is loved and welcomed? What if we begin listening to Jesus not from our own shame, but from a place of love? What if we see that Jesus is so gosh darn excited to have us be a part of the new story, a story unfolding against the powers and institutions that have made it their business to tell us we don't belong? What if we heard scripture and knew intrinsically our place within a world steeped in love. I know, it's hard. We've been hurt. I know it's hard when the world has only ever seemed to tell us that we are not welcome unless we fit the script. I know it's hard when we've been told time and time again, no, you are not welcome here. It isn't enough, I don't think, to walk into, a, walk into a knowledge of being beloved by faith alone. We need to walk into our belovedness by being shown the safety and reality of that love. Wouldn't it be something if the church could be that place? Wouldn't it be something if a community of people committed themselves to surrounding each other with a love that was real and tangible, a love absent of strings and stipulations? Wouldn't it be something if this community was assured that it was blessed by a God so in love with human beings? So, is it heretical for me to say that my Lord's Prayer has been a Mary Oliver poem? <laughs> for about four years, I interned and pastored at an Episcopal church. The repetition of liturgy communicated that these specific words are important enough to say over and over again. A few years ago, I actually started to roll my eyes a little bit when I heard someone use Mary Oliver's wild geese in a sermon or talk. Here we go again. And then 
I realize that maybe the reason it is repeated so much is that it is so important that we actually need to say it over and over again. Maybe it should be in the liturgy. As I was writing this message, the line, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. And I thought, darn it, Mary, you've done it again. You've said in 18 lines of poetry what I've been trying to say for the last 10 minutes. So here's the whole poem, our liturgy, our liturgy for this morning. If you know it, you can say it with me. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes. Over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, <clears throat> No matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Amen and amen. May it be so that we can say to one another, tell me your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. May it be so that you are reminded over and over again your place in the family of things. Beloved, as much as you're able to listen from that place, listen for God there. Let's try that now as we head into open worship. Here's some queries. When have you known that you are beloved? How might knowing that you are beloved change the way you listen? <clears throat> 